When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, it's another one of the final Legends books that I had never read before starting this podcast. It's The Last Jedi by Michael Reeves and Maya Catherine Bonoff. It's not the novelization of Episode 8, The Last Jedi, the film released in 2017. This story was published in 2013 and was one of the final few books released in the Legends timeline. It's the final episode of the Jack's Pavin story, a tale of loss, espionage, and resistance. Order 66 has wiped out almost the entire Jedi Order, and the few remaining have gone into hiding, but not Jack's Pavin, who leads a Coruscant resistance group against the Empire. Darth Vader and his Inquisitors will stop at nothing to hunt Jax down. Will he and his compatriots escape the clutches of the Dark Lord? Or will Vader crush the Resistance and slay the last Jedi? We'll find out in just a few minutes. But first, spring is here. It's the season of optimism and rebirth in the Northern Hemisphere. The days are getting longer, the weather getting warmer, and the pollen count is on the rise. It's the season of stuffy noses, watery eyes, sinus headaches, and chest congestion. Don't worry, though. I have my nasal spray and asthma inhaler ready. But most importantly to me, the new baseball season is here. And I'm not the only person geeked for the start of the MLB season. One of our listeners is also psyched for the start of baseball. And that's where I'll start with today's listener questions. My first email comes from Paolo who says, Hi Aaron, I've loved Legends since I started reading X-Wing Rogue Squadron with the novel in one hand and a dictionary in the other. I was a bit young for the book and wanted to make sure I understood everything that was happening. Experiencing these books again through your podcast has been like reconnecting with old friends. Like you, I'm very excited about the upcoming baseball season. I'm a Giants fan, but also consider Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson two of my favorite players of all time. Here's my question. Who would be your starting nine on a baseball team made up of Star Wars characters? Feel free to include a DH, a manager, base coaches, and relief pitchers if you like. Well, thank you very much for the email, Paolo, and thank you for the kind words. Reading through the Legends novels really does feel like reuniting with old friends. And for the books that I'm reading for the first time... It's like making entirely new friends. You know, when I started the podcast, I was excited, but I never thought I'd have this much fun going back through these books. Now, to your question. 
who would be my Star Wars starting nine? This was a more difficult exercise than I expected, Paolo. I'm not as versed with a lot of the more advanced metrics in baseball, like war, FIP, OPS+, etc. But I'm also not an old seam head who only wants to talk about the traditional counting stats, like batting average, RBIs, and a pitcher's win-loss record. I'm kind of in between when it comes to the statistical evaluations of a baseball player. So, with all of those caveats out of the way, here is my starting lineup for the Navarro Lava Meerkats. Leading off and playing center field is Cassie Cryer, the Torellian Django jumper who stole Ahsoka Tano's lightsaber on Coruscant. She's quick, fast, acrobatic, and those attributes are exactly what I want at the top of the order. In left field, batting second is Wedge Antilles. Nobody does the dirty work, takes pitches, sacrifices some of his personal stats for the greater good, quite like Wedge. But it's not like he's a Punch and Judy slap hitter. Wedge has some pop, with two Death Stars and the liberation of Coruscant on his resume. Now we get to the meat of the order. Batting third, playing shortstop, is peak Anakin Skywalker. I'm talking Clone Wars era Anakin Skywalker, the ultimate five-tool player and captain of my infield defense. Batting cleanup and playing second, his infield partner, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Can you imagine a better Star Wars double play combination than Anakin and Obi-Wan? I sure can't. Batting fifth, playing right field, the Mandalorian himself, Din Djarin. Not the best defender in the galaxy, but still, Din is a heavy hitter who seems to be slowly getting better swinging the Darksaber. Batting sixth, my DH, Ray Skywalker from the sequel trilogy. She's a natural talent, swings a mean bat, and can play all around the diamond, from the middle infield to all three outfield positions. Catching and batting seventh is Luke Skywalker. Now think about it. Luke isn't the most efficient offensive player on screen, but is there a better backstop? He's someone who controls the action on the field while keeping everyone calm and playing the ultimate defense, sacrificing himself for the team. The eighth spot in my order goes to my first baseman, Han Solo. Now, first base was the toughest position for me to fill, but I went with Han because he helps make up for the errors of his teammates. If you put Han on first, I think he saves a dozen errors from the other infielders. At the bottom of the lineup, playing third base, Jaina Solo from Legends. She can be a bit of a streaky player, but I like someone at the bottom of the order with some speed and some pop. And Jaina's instincts and quick reflexes would play great at the hot corner. Now, to quickly round out the team, Paolo, I'll give you two pitchers. My number one starter is Poe Dameron. He's the ultimate ace, right? And my closer is Chewbacca. Now, can you imagine what an eight-foot-tall beast with six-foot-long arms would look like coming out of the bullpen? He'd be throwing 102 miles an hour with a release point that's only 48 feet from home plate. Terrifying. Finally, I'm calling on Grand Admiral Thrawn to manage this ragtag group. Now, I'm a little concerned with his man management style. Let's face it, Thrawn doesn't really relate well with others. But tactically, 
I think Thrawn would love the decisions that a baseball manager needs to make pitch after pitch. Thank you very much for the email, Paolo. That was a really fun exercise, and it took me a lot longer than I expected. Now, today's second email comes from Gunner, who says, Hello, I love your episodes on the prequel era and from the Old Republic. I have two questions. They are, if Palpatine knew that Maul was alive, why did he not kill him after taking Anakin as his new apprentice? Did the Emperor truly care about Maul as he was his first apprentice? And what did the Sith think of the Darksaber? Did Maul have a respect for the weapon, or did he just use it as a sign of disrespect to the Mandalorians? Well, thank you very much for the email, Gunner. Personally, I don't think Palpatine cared about Maul at all. I don't think Palpatine cared about anyone except himself. In my opinion, Palpatine saw his apprentices as tools to help him gain power. Maul was a weapon and a warning. He was used to attack the Jedi and signify that the Sith were no longer in hiding. I think Palpatine used Maul as a distraction to draw the attention of the Jedi away from the increasing unrest in the galaxy. He then used Dooku as an outsider threat, scaring the core Republic worlds to consolidate power in the office of the Chancellor. And finally, he used Anakin to destroy the Jedi Order and then to maintain order throughout the galaxy. I don't think that Palpatine had Maul killed after he took Vader on as his apprentice because he just didn't care about him. He didn't really see Maul as a threat to the Empire. Now, I think you could say the same thing about what Maul thought about the Darksaber. He didn't really care about the weapon at all. He simply used it as a tool to obtain power and to obtain an army. He didn't care that the Darksaber made him the ruler of Mandalore. It was just a means to an end. Thank you very much for the email, Gunner. Now, listener, if you want to have a question answered on the show, like Paolo and Gunner, you can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at legendslounge1. And if you'd like to get your voice on the show, feel free to record an audio question and email it in. Just please help me out and record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now it's time for today's book, The Last Jedi by Michael Reeves and Maya Catherine Bonoff. Grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins aboard the Far Ranger. Jax Pavan and his crew are being chased by the Empire. Jax is helping the leader of the Whiplash Coruscant Resistance, Thai Zan Yaman, to escape to the planet Dantooine. But the ship is ambushed at a star system called the Twins. The Far Ranger is disabled in the battle, allowing Darth Vader and a squad of stormtroopers to board, hunting for Yaman. The Grey Paladin, Loranth Tarek, is killed in the assault, and Jax's droid I-5YQ is severely damaged. Vader takes Yaman, but surprisingly, leaves Jax alive. After the battle, Jax, Den Dur, and I-5 are picked up by the Antarian Rangers and taken to the planet Tapwara, one of the Whiplash's satellite sites. Back on Coruscant, 
the remaining leaders of Whiplash meet following Yaman's abduction. Police Prefect Paul Haas tells the others that with Vader off-world, Emperor Palpatine is leaving Imperial City for his vacation home on the coast. The information sparks an idea for Tudin Sal, the Sakaian who lost his fortune and his family in a hostile takeover of his business by Palpatine before he became Chancellor. Sal sees an opportunity to take revenge and plans to assassinate Palpatine. Paul Haas disagrees and pleads with Sal to reconsider. A move against Palpatine will bring the full might of the Empire down on them and destroy Whiplash. But Sal is adamant. Palpatine must die. He and several of the other Whiplash leaders oust Paul Haas from the organization and move on with their plans. On Tapwara, Jax and Den learn that Vader has not taken Yaman to Coruscant. He's taken the Whiplash leader to a secret Imperial base in the Canteros asteroid belt. Infiltrating the base won't be easy, but the Rangers tell them that the Empire is using the Black Sun Crime Syndicate to bring in many of their supplies. Jax travels to Mandalore and meets with Prince Shizor. The Black Sun Vigo offers a deal. He'll smuggle Jax into Canteros on a Black Sun transport, but Jax will owe the prince a favor. Jax asks what Shizor wants, but the Vigo says he doesn't know yet. It's enough, Shizor says, to have something on The Last Jedi. Jax returns to Tapwara and tells Den and I-5 his plan. Don't do it, they say. It's not worth Yaman's life to owe Black Sun. Besides, I-5 says, what's more important to Jax? Saving Yaman and protecting Whiplash, or getting revenge on Vader for Lorant's death? In the end, it's a moot point. Jax returns to Mandalore to join the crew of the Black Sun transport when Prince Shizor nixes the plan. Enraged, Jax storms into the Vigo's office and demands Shizor explain himself. The Dark Prince apologizes, but a new opportunity has presented itself. Shizor has learned of a plot on Coruscant to assassinate Emperor Palpatine. On Cantero's station, Darth Vader is summoned back to Coruscant. Before the Dark Lord leaves, he instructs one of his inquisitors, Probus Tesla, to observe Yaman, to try and learn what they can do to break the Syrian and bring down the entire Whiplash organization. Tesla mentally tortures Yaman, refusing him sleep and inundating the Syrian with light and sound. Strangely, nothing seems to be working. Yaman remains infuriatingly calm. The Whiplash leader frustrates Tesla, but the Inquisitor has an idea. Syrians have an immense binary brain with a dual cortex. Tesla believes the Whiplash leader experiences his torture with his lower cortex, while Yaman hides his conscious in his higher cortex. If they can surgically separate the cortexes, Tesla believes they can break him. On Coruscant, Paul Haas works to try and stop Tudensal's attempt to assassinate Palpatine, but he can't. Soon, word of an assault on the Emperor's coastal retreat reaches the Prefect. 
Haas uses his police credentials to investigate, and he arrives to the scene of a disaster. The bodies of dozens of whiplash operatives lie dead in the courtyard of the retreat. Haas later goes to confront Tutansal, but the whiplash leader is killed by a member of the Imperial Security Bureau. Following the failed assassination attempt, the Emperor orders Darth Vader back to Canteros to finally get any whiplash information out of Yaman. Back on Tapwara, Jax decides to open the Sith holocron that he had obtained from the Aloman Haninam Tik Rinan, who stole it from the Imperial Palace before escaping and joining Whiplash months ago. The holocron was created by Darth Ramage, an ancient Dark Lord who experimented with perceptions of time. Den and I-5 plead with Jax not to open the holocron, but the Jedi is determined. He steals a Jedi starfighter from the Antarian Rangers and flees Tapwara. Jax travels to Dathomir and meets with the witches of the Singing Mountain Clan. He opens the holocron and learns how to project force visions, for camouflage or for distraction. Armed with this new information, Jax decides it's time to head to Canteros and rescue Yuman. Now back on Tapwara, Den and I-5 formulate their own plans to free the Whiplash leader. They enlist the help of Satya Swiftberg, one of the Antirian Rangers, to pose as members of the Black Sun and infiltrate the base. The three arrive at Canteros and drop off their cargo when Jax Pavan arrives. The Jedi uses his new skills to hide his Jedi Starfighter behind a Force projection. Jax runs into his friends near the base's operating suite. There they find Yaman and free him. They turn to flee when they're confronted by Probus Tesla. The Inquisitor attacks Jax, who falls back, trying to lure Tesla away from the others. But the Inquisitor isn't fooled and corners the group in one of the corridors. However, Tesla doesn't realize there's an Antarian Ranger in the group. With his attention focused on Jax, Satya steps up behind Tesla and strikes with Jax's old lightsaber, slicing through Tesla's back, killing the Inquisitor. The group then heads to Satya's transport when Vader arrives on station. The Dark Lord senses Jax and sets off on the hunt. Jax orders the others to continue to the shuttle hangar, while he lures Vader deeper into the station. Jax leads Vader to the Imperial fighter bay. He tries a force projection to confuse Vader, but the Dark Lord sees through the trick. Vader stalks Jax through the fighter bay and confronts him near Jax's Jedi starfighter. A final duel seems inevitable, when suddenly there's a flash of light and an explosion. It's I-5 to the rescue. Jax takes advantage of the explosion and runs. He and I-5 make it back to the shuttle hangar and flee with Den and Satya. The story ends with Jax returning to Dathomir, convincing the witches of the Singing Mountain Clan to remove the teachings of Darth Ramage from his mind. He and Den and I-5 decide to return to Coruscant with Yaman to meet up with Pol Haas and any remaining Whiplash operatives to continue the resistance on Imperial Center. Time for a break. When we return, I'll talk more about The Last Jedi, the Legends story released in 2013. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. 
Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Aftermath is the beginning of the story following the Battle of Endor. The Empire's in disarray. Now its remaining leaders meet on a distant world to plan a counterattack. How will the Rebellion handle the lingering Imperial threat while trying to start a new Republic? That's Aftermath by Chuck Wendig, the first book in the Aftermath trilogy. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about The Last Jedi by Michael Reeves and Maya Catherine Bonoff, one of the last few novels released in the Legends timeline, published in 2013. Now, for the first time since I began this podcast in late December 2000, I really struggled finishing a book. I had not read The Last Jedi until starting it two and a half weeks ago. I was really excited as it was one of the few books that I had yet to read in Legends. And for the most part, I have enjoyed the previous stories featuring Jax Pavan, Den Durr, and I-5YQ. The stories I enjoyed the most were the MedStar duology. Now, Jax Pavan wasn't in those books, but Den Durr and I-5YQ were. I was mixed on the Coruscant Knights trilogy of books. I really enjoyed the second one. The first and third, not as much, although there were entertaining parts of both stories. This book... The Last Jedi, was just a little too convoluted for me. And I know that sounds really bad. I don't like using that word, convoluted. But I don't know what other word to use. There's just a lot going on in the story. There's a lot of Jax Pavan traveling all over the galaxy And seeming some of the places he goes, there's no real reason to go there. In the first half of this episode, I cut out a lot of Jax's travels in the plot summary. He goes from Topwara to Coruscant to Cantaros, back to Topwara, then to Mandalore, then to Coruscant then back to Topwara, then to Cantaros. He's all over the place. I forgot that he even stops at Dothamir in that list that I just gave you. And at times, it's just a little too much for me. I also think that Dendur and I-5YQ get pushed to the side a lot in this story. It really is Jax Pavan's story. It's a story of a Jedi who is struggling after Lorant's death in the first chapter. The Grey Paladin is his best friend. They are almost as intimate 
as two people can be that aren't really in a romantic relationship. As force users, they can have deep experiences that people who are just friends can't really have. The way they're written in the Coruscant Knights trilogy is kind of pseudo-romantic, but not really. I hope you listeners can understand what it is I'm trying to describe. But basically, when Vader kills Loranth in the beginning of the story, it's the tipping point for Jack's Pavin. He goes on a dark journey. He skirts the line of remaining on the light, but dipping his toe into the dark side of the Force. Eventually, he opens the Sith holocron in order to try to learn some information that he can use against Vader, against the Empire. But it's one of those things that we, the readers, know will ultimately be unsuccessful. Because by using the Sith holocron, Jax is giving up a little bit of his soul to the dark side of the Force. One of the things I wish from this story is that in by using the holocron, we see it really cost Jax. It doesn't in the book. And the author's get around it by having the Dothamiri witches of the Singing Mountain Clan take away the memories of the information that Jax gleans from the holocron. It's one of the few things I've read in Star Wars that just really doesn't work for me. If a character decides to use the dark side of the Force, I believe there must be repercussions. And there's not really for Jax Pavin in this story. Now, one of the other things that made this story a struggle for me is the manipulation of time. I am one of those people that does not like stories about time travel. I know it works for a lot of people. It can be fun. But the way my mind works is ultimately whatever happens when a person uses time travel doesn't make sense if you go back and really think about it. Now, what I will give this story is that its use of time does not involve time travel. I was grateful for that because I'm not sure then I would have actually finished the book. And That's one of my goals of this podcast, is to finish every book in Legends. Up to this point, I'm working 100%. I read every book in the two weeks between podcasts. With all the other things going on in this story, if Reeves and Bonoff would have included time travel, I'm not sure if I would have been able to finish it. What we did get about time is how an alien species called the Cephalons relate to time. 
and how they experience it. It says that the Cephalons experience time differently than all the other sentient species of the galaxy. They experience the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. It makes it difficult to interact with them. When Jax Pavan talks to a Cephalon in the story, it makes it difficult to understand what the Cephalon is saying. And of course, a being that experiences time differently would speak differently. It almost seems as though everything the Cephalon says is a prophecy. It's not a prophecy, but the way it's said makes it seem to be. And it's just frustrating for me. Now, if you, reader, enjoy stories of time manipulation, time travel, this is a story that you might enjoy. Am I glad I read this story? Yes. It's the conclusion in Legends to the Jack's Pavin storyline. But ultimately, the only reason I'm really glad I read it is to say that I read it in my journey through the Legends novels. And that's the first time I can really say that with a book. I know I try to be as positive as possible on these episodes, but this is really the first book that I've struggled with. So, it's almost time to go. But first, I've got another Star Wars character squad to read. This one comes from Jacob, who wrote a very nice email, but I had to edit it down just a little bit for the show. Jacob writes, I was inspired by a question from a recent episode of the Force Center podcast. As an aside, I love Ken, Joseph, Jennifer. I would love to speak to one of them one day and just for one hour talk Star Wars. Anyway, Jacob continues. I thought it would be a fun topic for the Legends Lounge. Who would you choose to have on your team for an Ocean's Eleven-style heist on a Canto Bite Casino? Now, using the same rules from Force Center, five team members, no Force users. Here are Jacob's picks. The leader is Luthan Real from Andor. He's an expert planner and tactician with contacts across the galaxy. Plus, he can blend in both with high society and the criminal underworld. The hacker? Jacob is going with Dr. Afra. She's a lot more of a wild card when it comes to sticking with a plan, but she has the skills to pull off a great heist. Jacob's getaway driver is Lando Calrissian, also an excellent face, and Lando has the piloting skills to get the team safely away with any loot. The thief? Embo, the bounty hunter. Jacob says he's quick and agile, and also strong and powerful in case things get hairy and they have to fight their way out. Finally, the droid, K2SO. It may be harder for him to blend in unless there's an Imperial presence, but he has a computer interface, and he can back up as the muscle for the group. That's a great squad, Jacob, and an excellent heist team. Plus, with Dr. Afra involved, there's always a chance for the type of zany hijinks that you always get in a good heist film when things go wrong. Thank you very much for the email. Now it is time to wrap up, 
If you have a question or comment for the show, or if you want to send in any of your favorite Star Wars character groupings, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com, or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Or, if you want to send in an audio message, feel free to email that in too, but please record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now, coming up on the next episode, I have a little surprise. It'll be a listener question show. I received so many emails over the last few months that it's gotten pretty difficult to keep up with all of your great questions. And I don't want to keep emailing people to tell them they have to wait four or five months to have their questions answered on the show. So, I invited the hosts of another Legends podcast to help me answer a few. Coming up in only one week, I'll be joined by Thomas and Crystal of the TK331 podcast to answer five of your burning questions. Tune in for that on Friday, April 7th. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.